I would invite you to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We're looking at the creation account from God Himself, who was the only one there. Moses recorded it for us. And we're leading up to this test in chapter 3. And so what we, we see is divine testing. Divine testing. In Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 8, just to give us a little bit of the context before we get into the next passage. Then the Lord, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed out of the ground. The Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. That was the purpose, to water the garden. And from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. The Bedalion and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flowed. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will die, surely die. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you just for the privilege of praising you. For the privilege of worshiping you. We know that you are in our midst and we are singing our songs of praise to you. And now, Lord, we come to your word and, and I, I pray that as your word is expounded, as it goes forth in our hearings today, that it would produce what you want it to produce in our hearts. May there be change when there, where there needs to be change. May there be renewing of the mind. May there be a decisions that are made today for your honor and for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now Moses, right away, you can see Moses is describing for us the Garden of Eden. We looked at, we began looking at it last week. But he doesn't give us as much information as we would like, right? Uh, he, he doesn't go full-on detail to satisfy our curiosity. That's not the point at all. He is doing this to set a a context. And I want you to see that that it's the flow of the passage is leading toward chapter 3. This whole whole passage, this passage is before all the way up to chapter 3. It's leading toward this time of testing. And it's giving us the context of the Garden of Eden, the, the, the condition of the Garden of Eden, because that's the place of testing. We see it as a a place of beauty, a wonderful thing. But Adam, it was a taste for Adam. It was a, a, a place of testing. 
as a, a testing ground, if you will. Now, we need tested. We're human. We use tests all the time here on this, uh, you know, here in, in America we do. We get you into school at an early age and then we begin to test you. We give you tests to see what you know so that we can advance you either to the next grade or to keep you back. We give you tests if you're going into the military, skill test, psychological test. Is this person going to be loyal uh, to our country? Strength test. It exposes our strengths and weaknesses. Personality test. If you took a, a job these days, if you take a new job, you, you, you may be asked to take a drug test. So trust, tests are for different reasons, but, but we need to be tested. We need that. Moses is giving us information that is pointing to the condition of the garden because it points out that Adam was tested in a perfect environment. It was a good place. All Adam needed, he had. And there was no reason for Adam to disobey. In fact, there was every reason for Adam to conform to what God says, to obey God. And God's love and provision of the garden we see here makes man's rebellion inexcusable. There's no reason. He cannot blame anything on the environment. There's no lack. God provided everything that he needed, all of the comforts at home. And last week we looked at that God had planted a garden. That was a deliberate, intentional act. You'll see that. Deliberate, intentional act. There was purpose and order. In this home, perfect for man. There was beauty of all the colors that you would want to see, the smells. It was a beautiful place. All the food, plenty of food, different kinds of food, good food. Now the question though, and, and, and Moses, this is Moses' thought then, what about the garden itself as far as uh, activity? What is there to do? Is it just going to be a boring place? What's the lay of the land? What's the terrain? Is there going to be enough activity and purpose and productivity? Is there enough resources there to keep Adam busy? Or is he just going to be bored sitting around eating grapes all day? So then Moses gives us, in verse 10 through 14, he gives us the resources of the garden. It's important for us to see that. His focus is upon the river and its description of a time that was not in... Moses' time, but he's pointing back even further to Adam's time. And he's, he's, he's kind of pointing, a, it looks like, sounds like he's trying to give us a location, but it's, it's really a description of a place that's not there any longer. Now, there's a few things I want us to notice. If you look, let me begin reading then in verse 10. Now a river flowed out of Eden a, uh, to water the garden. And from there it d- divided and became four rivers. Now, the focus here is, is, upon, is upon the rivers, and it gives us the names of the rivers. But I want you to notice the, the word there, it flowed out of the Garden of Eden, flow out of Eden. The word flowed there is, is kind of, under, should be understood that there was some pressure. It, it kind of emerged up from the ground. Water, water is uh, given to under the law of gravity and it flows down but this is flowing up out of the garden of eden it seemed to be under pressure like an artesian well uh, uh, element here and it's and it's vast it comes out of 
the Garden of Eden. And then it spreads out and it's a, a vast territory. Plenty of irrigation. It spreads way out. There's, there's plenty here. That's the, that's the idea. That's what we need to see. It's not, it's water is not coming down from mountains or anything like that. It's coming up from the Garden of Eden. There's a place in the Garden of Eden that, that just this water is, is springing up, maybe even gushing up. And that's the idea. It divides into four rivers. These rivers may probably flowed north to south, northwest to southeast. And probably in today's uh, area, we would think of it as going, flowing into the Persian Gulf in that area. In ancient Babylon, it would have been that area of the time. Now, that's the only location that we know. We really don't know where this is. Because Moses is pointing back to a time, really, that doesn't exist. It's a world that is not the same kind of world that we have today. And Moses is, is, is pointing these things out. And if you do any uh, research in Christian uh, science research uh, about the flood, you'll, you'll see that it's a, a little bit different world at that time. And the word that they use is um, diluvian. There's pre-diluvian, post-diluvian. And diluvian comes from the word a deluge, and that would be talking about the flood. That flood, Noah's flood, talking about Noah's flood, changed the world completely. And you, you can see this in Genesis chapter 7. If you turn over a few pages there, Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, we see in the, the 600th year of Noah's life, so we got a pretty specific date and time here, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open. Now, think about that again. All the fountains of the great deep burst open. Creation scientists gives us an indication here, said that there's indication here that just below the crust surface, the surface of the earth, the crust of the earth, there was a water table. And... It had not rained up until this time, this particular moment. And actually, it goes on to say the floodgates of the sky opened up. So there's water coming down, but also water coming up. The crust of the earth opened up and, and just uh, gushed this water, all this water out. So it kind of indicated that there was water, a water table, if you will, underneath the earth's crust. And you see that in chapter 8 and verse 2 when the water began to subside when the flood was over. It says also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed. So that, so that water gushes out and then it, and it kind of closes back. And so we have oceans maybe where there wasn't oceans before. But also, so it's a different place. In fact, it's so much of a, of a different place that Peter says that in Second Peter chapter uh, 3 and verse 6, he says, through which the world at that time was destroyed, completely destroyed, being flooded with water. So, so we really can't go back and point to these rivers. We don't know exactly where these rivers are. But we know that the, the environment was a little different. Um, before the flood, we, we, can, we can look around today and we can, we can assess some things. After the flood, what we have today is a hydrological cycle this water cycle that's uh, dependent upon primarily on the atmosphere and evaporation. And the, it would work like this. The, the, the water would be in the ocean. It would evaporate up into uh, 
the, the atmosphere, the wind would carry the clouds over the earth and now and then it would rain water the earth that rain water would then flow into the ocean that's the hydrological cycle that we know today but before the first rain before noah's time at least 1500 years the earth uh, was under a different kind of hydrological cycle and there's indication of scripture that there was this these this water chamber underneath the crust of the earth this this uh, subterranean pool, this reserve, this water table. And um, it was the hydrological cycle is primarily based upon that. And it would seem to to gush up in in places. And from there, it would just flow like an irrigation system and then flow back down into into the ocean. Now, that's pretty interesting. That's kind of cool, actually. It's pretty simple. Um. It, it didn't depend upon the atmosphere so much, so they, there would be less erosion, from the, no rain, no flooding, uh, but there would be pressure coming up from the ground of this water. And Christian scientists have sought to explain that. How does this happen? Well, we see it today, and like I said, in these, in these. Um, Artesian wells, sometimes just an act of nature, we would call it. Some Christian scientists say, well, the current of the ocean, the tide of the ocean as it comes out and goes goes in, would cause this water pressure to, to rise up and irrigate. And they would say, maybe even at night time, so it would, would not uh, interrupt the, the day uh, work of the day. It would flow out and then recede, and it would water the earth that way. Man, that'd be, that'd be great. Some say, well, no, it was probably water pressure from the, the crust of the earth, this table kind of resting on it, so it would, it would, it would kind of be in flux, and so it would, it would sprout up because of the pressure of the, the crust of the earth. Some say, well, it was geothermal. The, the water would heat up as it got close to the core of the earth and then uh, gush up like, like you would see in Yellowstone. So there's different models here, but the point being is that it was rich, fertile land because of the irrigation. And essentially, you'd be able to grow anything. It'd be wonderful. What a, what a wonderful um, system before, before the flood. There would be enough pressure, the water flow, like I said, it wouldn't cause erosion, but it would be enough pressure to, uh, to irrigate, no rain, no droughts. No flooding. Another thing that we need to notice here is in verse 12. Well, let me go ahead and read verse 11. The name of the first river. So he gives us four rivers. It flowed, uh, was Pishon, and it flowed uh, the, the whole land, around the whole land of Havilah. Again, we don't know these places, where these places were, but he's just pointing out the extent. So you have this garden, it would be big enough for man to take care of, but, but it also it extended pretty far out. The name of the second, I'm sorry, the, uh, verse 12, the gold, uh, so Havilah, there was gold in that place, uh, and the gold in that land was good. There would be um, the um, bedellion and the onyx stone are also there. Now what is he talking about there? Well, you might be able to go to these rivers and pan for gold. You might find gold. You might find these precious stones there. The second river is Gihon. 
And he, he gives us the, the flow of theirs all over the all over Cush. And then the third river is Tigris. It would have been east of Assyria. The fourth was Euphrates. Pretty extensive period, uh, a place that these four rivers that, that were formed uh, coming out of the Garden of Eden. A, a place of plenty. In verse 12, the, the verse 12 that I, I read there is also points to the these things of beauty. He points to the resources that are in this area. Gold, uh, probably other rich materials there. Uh, bdellium is, uh, it could have been two things. There was, it was a gum tree, gummy substance, or probably in the context here we would conclude it would be a, a stone, a rock, onyx stone as well. We know those things today. Natural resources. It's functional and beautiful. Everything that man would need to, to prosper, including, including the, the water. The, the finer things of life, we might say. And he's pointing those things out. Water is, of course, important as well. 60 to 70 percent of the, uh, the body is made up of water. It was needed for growing things. It was needed for transportation. We use it for uh, recreation today. We use it for even power, hydroelectric power today. And in, with Adam being in the image of God, he would have the, the resources. He would be able to discover God's resources that are there and bring it home and say, Honey, look what I found. This is great. And then he would be able to, to design it and, and create things and enhance God's creation. It'd be enough to keep Adam busy. It'd be enough for giving him purpose and, and a job and a focus and, and develop skills and, and enhancing, again, enhancing God's creation and making God's creation better for the, the whole as man, as man expands, as man is... Uh, being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. This garden really is an expression of God's love. Look how much I love you. And he gives Adam these things. Now, God expects something in return, doesn't he? He, he wants Adam to be productive and he points these things out and says, look, the resources are there. Be productive. And, and God expects Adam to do something, to do something. And that reminds me of Luke chapter 12, because uh, Christ points out this principle. And this is something for us to, to remember by way of application. In Luke chapter 12, in the middle of the verse, Christ says this. He says, everyone who has been given much, much is required. If the Lord has blessed you, then he expects great things from you. And Adam, of course, is immensely blessed. And, and the requirements of Adam was, was great. That he, he was going to be given much, but he was, he was expected much from him. And, it's, and it says, and to whom they entrust much of, them, of, of him, they will ask all the more. We, we have to produce. Adam was to, to find those resources develop those resources and produce something for the glory of God and demonstrating His being in the image of God. Now, just by way of application for us, how do we look at this? There's a couple of things to remember. Number one, remember our privilege. We look at Adam and we think, man, what a, what a glorious thing to be put in that environment. Just think of what I could have done. 
We have to remember the privileges that we have. That, that's got to be a motivating factor of our, our life. And we have to ask the question, what am I doing with the resources that the Lord has given me? What am I doing for Christ? What am I doing for, for Christ's church? What am I doing for the, the family of God? What activities am I involved in? <clears throat> we can't sit back and just say, oh, I was going to do great things, but COVID, it stopped me. I was going to do great things for the Lord, going to do all of these things to glorify the Lord. But the Lord gives us resources, money. He gives us time. He gives us position, responsibility. He gives us knowledge. We, we live in an information age. What are we doing with that knowledge? What are we doing with the positions that we have and the time that we have? In Ephesians chapter 1, we see as believers, we are given everything. Every spiritual blessing. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing. We remind us, to whom much is given, much is required. Another way of applying this little passage is that we need to remember what it, what it could have been like. Just, just think of us being in the garden. And just think... If sin hadn't entered into the world, if, if sin wasn't there, if, if the, the earth wasn't cursed, just think about what man could have produced. But sin, but sin entered because of the fall of man. There's a picture here of what, what is being missed, what, is, what we lack now. We look at those, we look at the Garden of Eden, we long, we think, man, we wish we could have been there. Think of the privileges lost. Think of the resources squandered because of sin. The beauty destroyed. The, the good that is distorted. Think of the, the joy that is drained because of sin. The peace that is forfeit, forfeited because of sin. The kindnesses that are frustrated. Sin is to blame. Sin is the problem. Sin is man's enemy. Now here's the, the application for us is, is we wallow in our sinfulness and then we wonder why are we having problems? We, we need to identify the enemy is sin. What sin is, is here? What can I extract? What can I get out of this life? And we wallow in our sinfulness and we wonder why we, we're losing. Wonder why we're frustrated. We've got to label sin from the Scripture We've got to repent. We've got to renew our mind. We've got to see things from God's perspective and, and move on. We've got to think about what could have been. If sin wasn't in the world, what Adam could have accomplished. And we're blessed, folks. We're blessed. At this point, what we see in the passage, the passage shifts from the Garden of Eden to the gardener. And the test that is put before Adam. If you look back, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. Let me read this. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate, cultivate it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From every tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And we see then, 
the gardener. Man is given some responsibilities here. There's a few things I want us to notice, though. I want you to notice the timing. The timing is important. And we see that in the first word in verse 15. Then the Lord God. Then implies that there's a progression here. And and he wants us to note that progression. What you notice is Eve is not in the picture yet. He places man in the garden. He brings Eve to to Adam. We'll see that next time. But he places the man alone in the garden. And he gives him a command. And that's the responsibility then falls upon Adam. Um, His responsibility of of the garden. To care for it. To take care of it. to, To cultivate it. And to keep it. He was responsible for the animals. He was responsible to to take care and to rule over and have dominion over God's creation. And the implication here is is the leadership role. That these things fell, the leadership role fell to Adam. All the weight fell upon his responsibility. All the responsibility fell upon his shoulders. Now he needed a, a helper, but the responsibility was his. Now I make a big deal out of this because Paul does. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, And this is just the way Paul applies this concept of the word then. (laughs) Because he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, but I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, that's in the context of the church, but to remain quiet, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. There's our word, then. The, The timing here is important. The timing is something that we need to take uh, note of that, that the weight of responsibility was on Adam. He was, the, he was the one that God was going to call into account. Eve was not in the picture. The next thing I want you to notice and go back to Genesis. I want you to notice the work that Adam was to do. It says, then the Lord took the man, put him in the garden to cultivate it. That's purpose. To cultivate it and to keep it. The word cultivate is to, to till or to, to work the ground. Um, now, the, the ground would have been easy for Adam. It was a wonderful place. The earth had not been cursed by this time, at this time. So it was just tender loving care, you might say. He would, he would arrange things and maybe plant things and, and put a, a pattern where there wasn't a pattern before and, and enhance God's beauty of, of the earth. And he was to keep it. He was to keep it beautiful. To keep it order, orderly. He was to work. Now notice again. That this was before. Before sin came into the world. Work is not a result of sin. We make sure we understand that. Men was. To be fulfilled by work. He was not to just be setting by. And be idle. There was a reward for labor. There was satisfaction for labor. It's important. Work was important and and even dignified. Because that's what God did. Remember that He worked and then he, He rested. But being in the image of God, that's what Adam was to do. Even in Revelation, we see in the new heaven and the new earth, we're going to be working. Not to work, to be lazy. Work was not something to be avoided. It was part of good purpose, the good purpose that God had. 
Now, before sin came into the world, it was easy for Adam. The, the, the ground cooperated. But in chapter 3 and verse 17, it says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Because Adam sinned. He said, it's going to be harder for you. Work is going to be difficult. And so we see the change there at the time of sin coming into the earth. But God's attitude toward work has not changed. There's no been, not, God has not changed his mind. Another thing that we need to notice is there's a restriction here. One restriction, just one restriction, and that's in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded saying, commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat. He's pointing out the positive here. Look at, look at all the stuff, all the trees, all the freedom that you have. No restrictions. You're blessed. Only one single tree, one thing not to do. And the command is very clear. Don't eat from this one tree. Don't eat from it. It was in the middle of the garden. The knowledge of good and evil. That was the title of the tree. It doesn't seem to be poisonous. It doesn't seem to, to really have any supernatural powers. But they were to not eat. You say, well, what is this tree of knowledge of good and evil? Theologians have kind of speculated on this. They, we, we point out that, that um, Adam and Eve knew good. They knew, understood good because they were surrounded by that. God said, this is good. In fact, at the end, he said, this is very good. So they knew good. They didn't know evil. What is this evil? Well, some theologians say, well, that's sexual awareness caused Eve to be ashamed, Adam and to be ashamed at the end. Or some say, well, it's moral discrimination, able to discern, discriminate good and evil. This is bad. This is good. Some would say, number three, that it's moral responsibility. They, they discerned in moral responsibility here that they didn't discern before. But really, the, the text just kind of indicates it's just a, an experience, moral experience, this, this evil of knowing good and evil. It's just the, the title that was put to the tree because disobedience to God equals evil. Disobedience to God is evil. And that's the title here. Just because you eat of it, God commanded you not to eat of it. If you do, then that's evil. That's evil. Now we know in Scripture that the fear of the Lord produces wisdom. Wisdom. You, you can gain experience. And that will give you knowledge, but that does not give you wisdom. It just... Man's experience leads, it's essentially, if it's in disobedience to God, it's just slavery. But when it's in the fear of the Lord and we trust God and we get our, our knowledge, understanding from Him, that, that is wisdom. The opposite is just our own experience. And that leads to slavery, sin. And then notice one last thing in this passage, and that's the consequences. You shall surely die. Consequences to be avoided. Death is foreign to this uh, garden. Uh, everything was good. Life was good. And so the opposite of life, death, is going, to be, is going to be bad. This is not something they would want. 
this is death. Death is separation. We need to think of death in that way. Death is separation of the soul and the body. When the soul departs from the body, that body we know is going to begin to decay. But there's also a spiritual death. Now, Adam lived 900 years after, after he took of this fruit. He, he continued to live physically, but he be, began to die physically. But he, he died spiritually. Spiritually, his soul, his spirit d- departed from the, the life giver there. He, he was becoming independent of God. And his body then went into the principle of death and decay. And, and he began to die physically. He died spiritually at that moment. And he began to die physically. And that's the way, that's the way it happened. And so what we see here is a, a clear warning. It says, don't do this. You, you will die. Death is, is here. Now... Because of this, because of the way we see this, um, there's no com- no reason given for this tree, no reason given for this particular command, no reason for this restriction, except for just the idea of testing. Except for the idea of testing. And so what we see here is, some people would interpret this more of a, a covenant between God and man, and it, you, could, you could see it that way, but it's probably more of just a warning from God. Don't do this. Don't do this. Now, this stage is set then for this testing to, to take place. And it implies that Adam needed to be tested. We think testing is a bad thing. We don't like tests. I never liked tests growing up. I'm just not a good test taker. Never have been. I freeze up or something. I guess you have to know something before you go into the test to do well, right? But God tests us. In the Old Testament, New Testament, He tested His people. He tests us. Man needs to be tested. It forces us to, to become aware of what we know or what we don't know or, or their weaknesses and strengths. It becomes, we become aware of, of things that we didn't know before going into the test. It forces us to, to, to choose certain priorities, certain things that are important, certain emphasis on things. We like to live in the gray areas, but those tests pushes us and pushes us to, to more black and white living, if you will. It pushes us to, to even more balanced living. Adam needed to be tested. Now we see two major tests of men in Scripture. This is the first one, right? The second one is what? The second Adam, Christ himself. God tested Christ. God tested Christ. Did Christ need to be tested? He needed that? We needed to see that. I want you to see this. So so turn over to Matthew chapter 4. This second Adam, Christ, was tested by by God. Matthew chapter 4 verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted for 40 days and nights, he then was hungry. Then the tempter came to him. Now, we see the the preparation for this test. And we could see some similarities here between Adam's Adam's testing and and. Uh, Christ testing some similarities that we would see here. 
is that God placed Adam into the garden, this place of testing. And in Christ's situation, it says the Holy Spirit led Christ out into the wilderness. Again, by God, the Holy Spirit led him. They were also tested by the same person, Satan himself, right? So we see some similarities, but there's a difference here. A lot of differences. And it points to a different environment. Adam was, what, placed in the perfect place, the Garden of Eden, for his testing. He couldn't blame the environment there. Christ, on the other hand, was led out into the wilderness, the the desert, a harsh environment. Adam had plenty. Christ had, had nothing. He was hungry. Christ had ultimately four tests by Satan and passed. Adam had one and he was over. Pointed out his weaknesses. Christ, he remained dependent upon the word of God. How did Christ face those tests? It says, but God says this. We know those, these things. Adam, he failed the test. He didn't go back to the word of God. Christ remained dependent upon the word of God. Christ was re- re- victorious then. You say, well, why is the first Adam and the second Adam? Why, were, why would we compare the two? Because the first Adam, of course, produced a human race. The second Adam, what is he producing? He's producing a spiritually alive breed of people, if you will. A whole breed of people that, that are now spiritually alive. In First Peter, we see that he says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, if you are born again in Him, you are a new breed of people. So you see the first Adam and the second Adam. The second Adam is Christ producing a new breed of people. Now let's go back to our testing. What is this test that Adam is getting ready to face? It comes down to, is Adam going to be Dependent upon God, is he going to stay with this is what God says and I'm not going to budge? Or is he going to be independent of God? And that's really what it comes down to. Is he going to obey or or disobey? Now let me just say this. This is a point that's worth making. That, That man was created as with a dependent relationship on God. Even in the perfect environment here, he had everything that he needed. He still couldn't be independent from God. He was still dependent upon God. Even though he had everything, he was dependent upon God for two things. Life and knowledge, wisdom. Maybe Adam didn't see that. Maybe he needed to understand there's a, there's a big difference between you and your uh, being uh, on your own and your dependence upon God. Man will never, ever gain his independence from God. He was a dependent creature. He was made dependent from birth or from creation. And he had to walk with God. He depended on, on or he needed that relationship with the life giver and the, the wisdom giver. And just by way of application for our own selves. 
our independence or our dependence upon God is, is not a result of sin. We're not weaker because we depend on God. We're created to depend upon God. We need that relationship with God. Number two, this means that we need to resign ourselves to a life of faith. A life of faith and dependence upon, upon God Himself and in His Word. And then we need to remember any, any pursuit of independence from God is like a, a man in the, in the depths of the ocean, underwater, he, breathing with an oxygen tank, but he's fiddling around with it. Maybe, maybe he could give it, out, give it to somebody else, or, or maybe he can just uh, not use it. Foolish, right? He's going to die. Dependent upon that oxygen. He removes that tube, that oxygen tank, and he will, he will die. That oxygen is providing him life. And, and tr- getting rid of that thing, trying to be independent of that oxygen level, uh, that oxygen is what Adam was trying to do. I want to be independent of God. I think I can do it. And that's kind of the test. What he would determine. Am I going to do right? Or am I going to do wrong? Am I going to obey God or disobey God? Am I going to submit to His will, reject His will, and become autonomous to Him? Am I going to live by faith or am I going to live by sight? Am I going to have this lifestyle or am I going to have that lifestyle? Am I going to submit and love God or am I going to live in rebellion against God? Am I going to be influenced by the world or influenced by the Word? Am I going to be building my life upon the rock? Or am I going to be building my life upon sand that's going to decay or or erode? Am I going to be on one side? Am I going to be on the side of good? Or am I going to live on the side of, of evil in the world? Man needed to be tested. And he needs to know that he is, he is dependent upon God. Man needed to see that he was not God and never could be independent from God. He was a dependent creature. Folks, we're tested. This life is a test, isn't it? We're tested all the time. And the bottom line is, is what's your character? What's, what, what are, what's, are, are you going to be obedient or, or disobedient? You're going to be dependent upon God by faith or are you going to be independent of God? going to be pride or humility. And it reveals the heart. That's what God does. reveals the heart. That test. But in God's testing, it always produces, in James chapter 1, it produces endurance. That testing produces endurance. Tests are a good thing. And ultimately, we know in Romans chapter 8 that all things are going to work together for our good and for God's glory. It's a good thing. Even through those testing. Now, we don't like the testing because it forces us to choose. It, it forces us, it pushes us to, to, to emphasize one or the other or, or decide which direction we're going to go. And sometimes it, it hurts, produces uncertainty. And the question we have to ask ourselves, is God's testing in our life, is it producing anything? Is it, is it, is it productive Am I learning? When I go into, when I was going into third, fourth grade, I, I was oblivious of school. I didn't really care. I didn't know what was going on. You know, it's just I was third grader. I'd go into these tests and I'd fail these tests. 
they needed to know what I knew so that they can hold me back or advance me. God tests us to point it out to our own heart so that we can correct our own heart. And here's, and I'll close with this. Here's the, the passage that's on the screen there. This is a wonderful passage. This is David's attitude toward God's testing him. In Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. This, is, this has to be our attitude toward the trials of life, toward the testing that God puts us through. He says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thought and see if there be any hurtful, wicked way in me and lead me in an everlasting way. Expose my heart, Lord, so that I can, I can know and make the corrections and move on. That's the idea of the testing, divine testing in our life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we... Just thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for the testing in our lives. It hurts. We don't like it. We even balk against it. But, Lord, we're to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. Lord, help us to see testing the way David saw it. Help us to prepare ourselves to, to know that that you want to expose our hearts so that we can correct the things that need to be corrected in our life. And, and thank you for being a loving God that, that cares about us enough to test us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.